Well, we are in a series on Romans. If you didn't know that, we uh, began a few weeks ago, um, the gospel of God concerning his son. And today we're in Romans 1, 16 and 17. Our title is Not Ashamed. Last week we saw that Paul was eager to preach the gospel to the Romans because of the deep sense that he was under obligation because of God's saving intervention in his own life and, and of his commission to fulfill a unique role in God's kingdom purposes as the pioneer apostle to the Gentiles. So this morning in verses 16 to 17 of chapter 1, uh, Paul gives two more reasons as to why he is eager to preach the gospel. First, that it is the power of God for salvation, and second, that in it the righteousness of God is revealed. And as he does so, he states the central thesis of this entire letter to the church in Rome. Now, this is not going to be a, a lightweight sermon today. I'm going to ask you to apply your minds. And uh, I never want it to be said of LifePoint Church that you had to check your brain at the door to even survive here. I want to challenge you to think about your faith, that you would have a reasoned faith, that you would understand the gospel. And uh, so put on, as my, as my elementary school teacher used to say, put on your thinking caps. And let's uh, get into chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. This is the, the, this is the, uh, the letter to the Romans in a nutshell. It's the, it's the compressed form of this entire letter, and so it's important that we really look carefully at what he is saying in these two verses. You might say, at two verses a week, we're going to be in this until my 401k is gone, and um, I assure you we'll be looking at some wider swaths, but Paul gives us some real essential nuggets here early on. So let's stand and let's read this together, just two verses, verses 16 to 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is God's word. As we hear Paul say, I am not ashamed of the gospel, he is not saying the opposite. He's not here saying, I am proud of the gospel. I've seen a couple of paraphrases that, that render it that way. Paul's choice of words is right on target. Some Christians would be offended by the mere suggestion that any other Christ follower might be willing to say that they are ashamed of the gospel, but they could only say that if they were being patently dishonest about the teaching of Jesus as well as their own experience. Jesus himself warned his disciples against being ashamed of him, an indication that he understood and anticipated that they not only might be, but would be. Paul warned Timothy about the same possibility. A Scottish pastor by the name of James Stewart once said in a sermon on the text that we're considering this morning, there's no sense in declaring that you're not ashamed of something, unless you've been tempted to feel ashamed by it. And Paul undoubtedly had experienced and therefore understood the temptation. He wrote to the Corinthians and said that the message of the crucified Christ is regarded by the Jews as a stumbling block, by Gentiles, that is, non-Jews, as utter foolishness. The gospel is offensive because it undermines our self-righteousness, and it challenges our self-indulgence. 
the message of both Jesus and the apostles is unequivocal in asserting that whenever the gospel is preached, it may arouse opposition, contempt, or ridicule. You've experienced this, and so have I, in varying measures. Because before the gospel can be operative, it first must be offensive. Let me repeat that. Before the gospel can be operative, it has to be first offensive. Before it can be received as good news, it must be perceived as bad news. The gospel tells us that we are sinners separated from God, that all of our righteousness is worth no more than filthy rags, that we are helpless to save ourselves so that we are in desperate need, ultimate need, eternal need, infinite need of a Savior. J.I. Packer wrote that the biblical doctrine of human depravity does not assert that we are in every way as bad as we could be, but rather that we are in no way as good as we should be in order to meet God's righteous standard. We use an expression around here and encourage each other to pray for our one or to share Christ with our one, to invest time with our one. And by that, we mean the one person in our life that we are praying for in, with particular focus, that they would come to receive Christ. And I heard someone recently say that they've hesitated to share the gospel with their one because they value their relationship and they're concerned about offending her and alienating her. And I think we can all relate to that sentiment. And in most cases, we can muster the relational intelligence to share the gospel we with those we love without risking the relationship, but not always. Not always. And I want to ask, is it love to withhold the only message that can save her soul? Is that love? Are we more concerned that they might reject us or that they might reject Christ? Are we more concerned about their temporal alienation from us or their eternal alienation from God? See, an inoffensive gospel, a gospel that excludes the offense of the cross, I hope you'll agree, is an inoperative gospel. It's a vacant gospel. An inoperative gospel will never save anyone. And just so you know, the gospel is not about you having a happy life. The gospel is not about you having a cushy retirement or your dream home. Straight teeth, nice hair. The gospel is about the cross. So what does Paul have to offer us that will help us to overcome the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel? He tells us in verse 16, it's by remembering, recalling, bringing repeatedly 
to mind the realization that this message that is despised by those who are perishing for its weakness, for its foolishness, for its preposterous claims, is in fact the very power of God. Paul says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because, because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And I want to just pause there for a moment because Paul's calling us to think of the gospel in a way we don't normally think of it. We think of the gospel as a story, which it is. We think of the gospel as a message, which it is. But Paul wants us to understand that that story, that message, is inherent power, innate power. And the power is not, does not reside in you or I as we share the gospel. The power resides in the gospel itself. Which we will happily realize takes us off the hook of playing the role of the Holy Spirit in anyone's life. We are not the power. We are not the convictor of sin. We are not the persuader of truth. The Holy Spirit does that work. I am not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's the good news that in the person and work of God's Son, Jesus Christ, through his incarnation, his sinless life, his sacrificial death, his burial, and his resurrection from the dead, God has opened the way for anyone and everyone who believes to be forgiven of their sins and to enter into a reconciled relationship with him. Again, I want to stop and comment for just a few moments on another word that we tend to throw around a lot. You use it somewhat casually, Christianese, the word salvation. And we use this term most often to describe only conversion. Somebody got saved. They believed in Christ. They were converted. But salvation begins with conversion, to be sure. But it means so much more. Its basic meaning is soundness or wholeness. We don't often think of it that way. You, You may have never thought of it that way, but that's what the word itself means. To be made sound, to be made whole. It promises the restoration of all that sin has vandalized, all that sin has destroyed, all that sin has stolen from you and from me. It's a general term that draws together all of the aspects of the work of God in the life of the believer. Salvation begins with the truth that in Jesus Christ, God has rescued us from the ultimate penalty of our sin, which is eternal separation from him. But salvation certainly does not end there. It includes deliverance also from the power of sin. And ultimately, from the very presence of sin, when Christ returns to take his own to the place that he has been preparing for them. And what a day that will be. And can you imagine? No, you can't imagine. Neither can I. The experience of of being freed from the very presence of sin, from all temptation, from all notions of disobedience, 
resistance to God. Thoughts that are focused only on self and fully on him. So one who has rested their confidence in Christ for the salvation in all of its for their salvation in all of its fullness is able to say I have been saved past tense from the penalty of my sin I am being progressively saved present tense from the power that sin has over me and I am looking forward today to the day when in the presence of Christ I will be saved future tense from the very presence of sin Notice with me what Paul is revealing about the gospel then in verse 16. First, he says again, as we saw last week, that the source of this gospel, this good news, is God himself. In verses 1 to 4, similar to the prophet Jonah's declaration that salvation is of the Lord, Paul writes that the gospel is the gospel of God. It's the gospel of God. God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God and power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is the gospel's author. God is the gospel's originator. He is its initiator. It is God who conceived of it, it is God who commanded it, and it is God who completes it. Here in verse 16, Paul wants us to know that the gospel is power and that the one in whom that power exclusively resides and through whom and by whose authority that power is exclusively unveiled and unleashed is God himself. Next, notice with me that Paul wants us to understand that the substance of the gospel is the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In using the word substance, I mean that Jesus Christ is the gospel's content. It is about Jesus. The source of the gospel is God, and the substance of the gospel is the person and work of his Son, Jesus Christ. Again, as we saw last week, this gospel about which Paul is writing to the Roman believers is the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel is about Jesus. Regarding that atoning sacrifice of Christ, Paul wrote in Romans 3, For all have sinned, all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God. Many of us have memorized verse 23. We maybe have not taken the time to memorize what follows and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation, there's another big word. What's a propitiation? It's a sacrifice. It's a blood sacrifice. The writer of the Hebrews 
captured this in chapter 10 where he wrote, Christ offered for all time, for all time, a single sacrifice for sins. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Third, Paul informs us that the scope of the gospel is everyone who believes. Scope of the gospel is everyone who believes. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Jews come first because they're God's people. They're the chosen ones. The gospel came first to them. Paul followed that pattern always in his missionary work. He would begin with the synagogues and then move to the Gentiles. Colossians 3.11, he wrote, Here there is not Greek and Jew. Here in the church, here in the kingdom, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all. And in all. In Galatians 3.28, he wrote, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We learned it, or we should have, in Sunday school when as children we sang, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. The ground is level at the foot of the cross because the gospel is the great leveler. Regardless of race, ethnicity, gender, religious background, education, or socioeconomic status, each of us is equally lost apart from the gospel, and we are equally saved by it. Fourth, notice with me the significance of the gospel, that it is true, it always has been true, It always will be true, and because of that, it is applicable to everyone, everywhere, at all times. I heard the story of a conversation between the Archbishop of Canterbury and the actress Jane Fonda. And in that conversation, the Archbishop said to Jane Fonda, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jane Fonda replied, well, he may be the Son of God to you, but he is not to me. To which the archbishop answered, Miss Fonda, he either is or he isn't. Paul made that point to the Corinthians in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians when he penned these words, For if there is no such thing as a resurrection from the dead, then Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, all of our preaching has been for nothing, and your faith is useless. Moreover, if the dead are not raised, that would mean that we are false witnesses who are misrepresenting God. And that would mean that we have preached a lie, stating that God raised him from the dead, if in reality he didn't. If the dead aren't raised up, that would mean that Christ has not been raised up either. And if Christ is not alive, you are still lost in your sins, and your faith is a fantasy. It would also mean that those believers in Christ who have passed away have simply perished. If the only benefit of our hope in Christ is limited to this life on earth, we deserve to be pitied more than all others. 
Miss Fonda, he either is or he isn't. And Paul was honest to say that our faith rests on one thing and one thing alone, that Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified on a Roman cross outside of the city of Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago, was physically, literally, historically raised from the dead on the third day. Alistair Begg, a pastor in Cleveland, Ohio, once said in a sermon on this text, we either have the good news, the ultimate only good news, or we're involved in the biggest religious con job the world has ever known. There is no in-between. Paul goes on and he says that the gospel is not only the power of God, but the gospel reveals God's righteousness. For in it, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What does Paul mean when he says that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God? How are we to understand it? The Bible speaks of God's righteousness in at least three ways, and reading the biblical commentaries, it would seem that there is little consensus among biblical scholars on which one Paul had in mind. I prefer to see it this way, that all three converge and co-mingle in the gospel, that Paul had the fullness of the righteousness of God in his mind as he wrote these words in verse 17. So let's take a brief look at each of these three views. First of all, the first view is this, that righteousness describes God's attributes. God's attributes. To say that righteousness describes his attributes is simply to say that our God is a righteous God. He is perfectly righteous, perfectly upright in his character. In Exodus 34, if you know the story, Moses had gone to the top of the mountain and met with God there. God had given him on stone tablets the Ten Commandments. Moses came down from the mountain, found his people Israel involved in uh, abject idolatry. In his frustration and anger, he smashed the stones, and so the Ten Commandments temporarily went away. Moses took two more tablets of ibuprofen and went to his tent. God then invited him back up the mountain, and in Exodus 34, we read that he summoned Moses yet again to the upper reaches of Mount Sinai, and Moses has obediently risen early in the morning to make his way up the mountain. Perhaps this is the reason that high-level meetings are often referred to as summits, and oh, that the Lord were invited to all of them. But in Exodus 34, beginning of verse 5, when he arrived, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And listen to what he says. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children 
to the third and the fourth generation. See, God's righteousness includes attributes such as his mercy, his grace, his patience, his forbearance, love, faithfulness, justice. One way of understanding and remembering the meaning of righteousness as it relates to God's attributes is that the essence of his righteousness is the perfect consistency of his being and his doing. That is the perfect integrity of his character and his actions. The psalmist wrote that God rules in righteousness. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. The word righteousness is a relational term. It means to be in right relationship. And as we speak of righteousness in terms of the attributes of God, we are speaking essentially of the perfect consistency of his character, God's right relationship with himself. Second view is this, that righteousness denotes God's actions. And this is specifically to say that in his righteousness, God comes to the rescue of his people. He, he acts to save us from sin, from ourselves, from our enemies, from the enemy of our souls. In Scripture, his salvation and his righteousness are frequently coupled together, which is one way of saying that because he always acts in consistency with his character, he therefore always keeps his promises. He can be trusted. He is a faithful God. Psalm 98.2, the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Through the prophet Isaiah, God said, there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. Isaiah 46, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. Notice the connection between his righteousness and his salvation. He always acts in perfect consistency with his promises. Third, righteousness defines God's achievement. The third view is that righteousness defines God's achievement, which is to say that in his righteousness, he imparts righteousness to all who believe on the basis of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He bestows on us a righteous status. Let me unpack that for you just a little bit. We often think, and rightly so, of our salvation as forgiveness of sin because it begins with that. That when we trust in Christ, our sins are washed away. The Bible says that in a thousand different ways. So that as we stand before God, God the righteous judge on the basis of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, because he gave his life for us, as we stand before God, God the righteous judge is able to say, your sins are forgiven, you are justified. So that it's just as if I'd never sinned. I stand before God forgiven, I stand before God acquitted, I stand before him pure, I stand before him innocent of all charges now and forever. So God imputes to me his righteousness. He declares me righteous. 
But God goes one more step, and it, and God, as God the judge declares me righteous, God the heavenly Father wraps me in robes of righteousness. As, a, as, as he adopts us as his children, he takes the righteousness of Christ and enfolds us in it. Remember the story of the prodigal son and the, the father who says, you know, kill the fatted calf and bring a robe and a ring and shoes for his feet. And it's, it's the picture of God dressing us in, in, in the righteousness of God, adopting us as his children and putting on us the mantle, the robe of his righteousness so that as we, we not only are declared righteous, but we are God imparts his righteousness to us. He gives it to us as our own possession. Paul picks this up in Romans 3, and we're going to see this a year or two from now. Just kidding. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And notice these, this last verse here. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And I will tell you that as a garden variety sinner, I wrestle all the time with the whole notion that God could forgive me. Because I find myself sinning over and over and over again in the same rut. You've been there? You have sin ruts of your own? And you say, God, how could you forgive me? When I keep failing, I keep blowing it. I keep resisting. I keep deliberately disobeying. How could you forgive me? Paul tells us here that in Christ, he showed himself to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So that as Christ hung there on the cross, offering the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation, if you will, for all of our sin, for all time, God's justice was being expressed because Jesus said, I'll stand in for them. And I will bear in my own body all of the sins of humanity, all the penalty, all the, the fullness of the wrath of God. And Jesus prayed in the garden, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The cup that he was describing, the cup that he was, to which he was referring was the cup of God's wrath, which he would drink in its fullness. 
and God poured out all of his wrath toward the sins of humanity, yours and mine, and the sins of the whole world. He poured it all out on Jesus. The justice was expressed and satisfied at the cross. And because Jesus stood in for us, God was just in exercising his justice. And because Jesus stood in, God now becomes the justifier of all those who look to his son Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, for their salvation. And Paul concludes in verse 17 that God's gift of righteousness is by faith from first to last. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Paul wrote very precisely, and his choice of prepositions sometimes make people much smarter than I scratch their heads. And this is one of those occasions. So what precisely did Paul mean by this phrase, from faith for faith? Remember here that Paul's concern is not how righteous people live, but rather how sinful people become righteous. Righteousness is a gift of God's love. It's a gift of his mercy, his grace. It's personally received by simple faith in Jesus Christ. It's not received by baptism or church membership or any religious activity. It is received by faith. Simple faith in Jesus Christ. And the righteous status that God confers is from faith. That is, begins with faith, and it results in increased faith. That it is, it is for faith. He wants our faith to grow. The life of Christian discipleship, then, is a matter of faith from beginning to end, from first to last, which is why the NIV, I think, captures it best, the New International Version of the Bible, in its translation that says a, self, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Paul picked this up in Philippians 3. Having listed all the things that he thought were to his credit in the kingdom of God and realizing that all of it was worthless, he said, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Not a self-styled religion, not a self-styled righteousness, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And Paul concludes this, these two verses with, with this simple reference to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And I, I love the way that the RSV captures this. He says, he who through faith is righteous shall live. He who is through faith is righteous shall live, shall live. My prayer for you, I know I've strained your brain today. You're welcome. My prayer for you is that you'll live, that you'll experience life, that you'll receive life. Because the reality is, the bad news of the gospel is that apart from it, 
you and I are dead in our sins. We are eternally separated from God. My prayer for you today is that you look to the cross. You look to what God did by his love, by his grace, by his mercy. Not because you're smart, not because you're clever, not because you're good-looking, because you're particularly religious, and certainly not because you're obedient, but because he loves you. And you look to the cross and receive his salvation. Let's pray. Lord, your word is uh, often makes us scratch our heads. This is why many of us go bald at the back. But we thank you, Lord, that uh, it speaks to the deepest needs of our hearts. And Lord, I pray today for those who are still standing on that at the two-yard line looking towards the end zone, wondering if they should take the step. Lord, would you today grant them the gift of faith that leads to life? I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.